And let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for another opportunity to to gather together as the people of God and to look to the scripture and to be nourished upon good doctrine. And we pray now that the Holy Spirit of God, that he would come and fill this place, every nook and cranny. We pray now that he would fill our minds, that he would fill our hearts. We yield ourselves, O God, as living sacrifices to you right now that your will may be done and not our own. And so now, Lord, may the meditation of my heart and our hearts, O God, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're looking now at uh, article number two. We'll just read through it first. We'll read through the article and then walk through it together. Article two of the word or son of God, which was made very man. The son, which is the word of the father, begotten from everlasting of the father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the father, took man's nature in the womb of the blessed virgin, of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried to reconcile his Father to us and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. Okay, now, um, just as a... um, a comment, there, there are a number of uh, heresies that this uh, uh, article is responding to, such as docetism, heresies that denied either the deity or the manhood of Christ, and we simply can't go into all of these lest we're, we be here all, all night long. Uh, and so I've deliberately left those, left those out. Um, but if you have questions, we can, we can look at that later. Okay, I want to look first at the, the idea of the Word, and uh, then uh, this idea of Him being begotten, um, then the virgin birth and the death of Christ, and then Christ as high priest uh, towards the end. So, first of all, we hear that of the Word uh, and the Son, the Son, which is the Word of the Father, begotten from everlasting. So, obviously, this is taken from, from John, Where is my Bible? John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn. We'll take a look at some of these scriptures tonight. So John chapter 1. Most of us tonight know this by heart. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, um, a couple things here. Um, The idea of the word, as as, uh, John is putting forth, as Calvin notes here in in, in, in 1a, is about communication. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God's communication. He is God's speech. That's what Calvin uh, likes to, 
to how he likes to phrase it. Christ, or the word, the word Jesus is God's speech, which means that the Father does not communicate apart from his Son. There is no communication of God outside of Christ. He doesn't convey himself without Christ. Um, not only in these days, but whenever God has ever communicated himself, it has always been through Christ from the very beginning. Which is to mean that God the Father is never to be understood apart from the Word, apart from the Son, which is a perennial temptation to many who try to interpret the Bible. Now, under B there, you'll notice Goodwin, Thomas Goodwin, a prince among Puritans. Thomas Goodwin said, we all have the fiber of Pelagiana in us. We all have the fibers of Pelagianism in us. That means we're all tempted to, to view our salvation in terms of what we contribute to it. That's the, the essence of Pelagianism, that we think somehow that we can add even a little mite to God's salvation, and that temptation's in all of us. Well, we all, if, if that's true, then we also have the fibers of Gnosticism in us. All of us do. And part of Gnosticism, that old heresy, is, is a... Uh, a dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. So the God of the Old Testament was viewed as wrathful, angry, vindictive, judgmental, and angry. And the God of the New Testament as revealed in Christ is the God of love and mercy and loving kindness and, 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 and tenderness. And whether we like it or not, we are all tempted in this way to, to disregard the, the God, at least to to, uh, to pigeonhole the God of the Old Testament as the God of anger and the God of the New Testament as revealed in Christ as the God of love. Now, what, what John here is saying in John 1 is that whenever God was communicated in the Old Testament, it was the Son at all points and in all places so that the harder passages are descriptive of the Son. Now look at Ezekiel 7. Here's just a couple of these harder passages that we need to take into account here. Ezekiel 7, 8 to 9. Ezekiel 7, 8 to 9. We read, Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you, and I will spend my anger against you, and I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations, and my eye will not spare nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. That is Jesus. <laughs> that is the Son. That is the Word of God. Um, and it's, it's a great mistake in the present-day church to think of Jesus only as the meek and mild Lord and not as the God who strikes. That's a mistake. It's a dangerous mistake. Look at Luke 19. Turn to Luke 19, just as, a, as, a, as evidence of this. Look at Luke 19. I was, I was sharing this with the, with the prayer group on Monday. This is the... Uh, can I have a, a tad more light here? I just... Beauty. 
They're good. Okay, Luke 19. Okay, Luke 19. Um, this is, this is the, the, the parable, now importantly, this is really important here. This is the parable that comes right before the triumphal entry. So right before flocks and flocks of people are, are waving their palms around and they're, they're, they're celebrating Christ, the same people that will soon be yelling to crucify him shortly after. Just before that, he tells this parable of a, I won't read the whole thing, but it's the parable of the talents or the minas and uh, the faithfulness of his servants. But there's a servant at the end. This is now looking at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank at my coming? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even that, even what he has will be taken away. Now look, look at verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now I don't know about you, but I don't hear that verse very often in the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Slaughter them before me. Meek and mild riding on a donkey, he comes. Now look at, look at 1 Thessalonians 1. Uh, sorry, this should be 2 Thessalonians, not, not 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 9. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in what? Flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So the, 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 um, the idea that, that Jesus is the, the one who only uh, conveys the love and the mercy of God and that the, the God of the Old Testament is that aspect of God which demonstrates the vengeance and the judgment and the wrath and the anger of God is definitely false and it's unhelpful. And when we preach Christ and when we preach the cross, it is always mercy and judgment. It is always mercy and judgment. Those two things have to go together and they must never be taken apart. There's a, in, in, I guess in, in, there's a hypostatic union with those two things. They can't be sundered. 
That's, that's crucial. And, and why? why is it the case? Because he's the word. And the Christ as word is the communication of God's love, but he's also the communication of God's anger and, and judgment. And uh, we, we, we must present those two things as the church. Um, secondly, so he, he, is, he, is the, he is always to be um, the communication of the Father. The Son is the speech of God in all hard passages of the Old and New Testament. He's also God's, God's act of power. So God's speech in the Old Testament and the New is always to be understood not only as descriptive of God, but it's God's act of power. When God speaks, when God speaks, things happen. And so in Genesis 1-3, the divine fiat, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a separation of, of, the, uh, of the, um, the, the earth and the waters. When God speaks, things happen. Now, um, look at here at, at uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, just as an example of this. Christ as word, where am I here? Christ as word, Colossians 1, girls eat popping corn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay. Uh, I knew, I knew this, God eats pizza cold. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's just the, the spoken words, that the divine spoken word of um, that we have in all those those spoken words in uh, in Genesis one. God said, God said, God said. Let there be. It's re- the Latin for let there be. My brother's tag name for uh, for his Xbox, Fiat Surfacia, right? Let there be beer. Um, <laughs> so it's all, it's all the let there be's. Let there be. God simply says, God speaks, and things come into existence. Um, Colossians 1, 15-17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now you notice here, um, you notice there, I made a little note in parenthesis just to, just to explain that firstborn. Firstborn is not meant by Paul here to mean that he is the firstborn of creatures. But he is the firstborn, he is the primogenitor, that, 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 uh, that big, big word there, that he is the heir of all things. That's what Paul means, the firstborn gets it all. Everything, all the whole estate is for the firstborn. And so when Paul says Christ is the firstborn, everything is for Jesus. This cuts right against all of our, our humanistic self-vaulting, self-boasting, you know, uh, isn't God lucky that I... I, I I gave into the gospel. Isn't God lucky to get me? Isn't, you know, we we get so absorbed in ourselves, especially when we start asking God, what's your plan for me? Right? The the perennial question of all all people, Lord, what's your plan for me? As if it's all about me, as if if the plans, God's plans for me are, are of ultimate importance. God's plans for Christ are of ultimate importance. And uh, he is the heir of all things, and every piece of wood and stone and tree and river, it's all for Christ. That's why I love that old song. We haven't sung it in a long time. 
We have never sung it, actually, Josh. And we, I'm, not, I'm not saying, it might be completely stale at this point. It might be completely stale, but do you guys remember, do you guys remember that song, that old 90s song, It's All About You, Jesus? And all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me, as, you've, as if you should do things my way. You alone are Lord and I surrender. It's all about you. It is all about Christ. The church is about Christ, our days are about Christ, our sufferings are about Christ, our joys are about Christ. It's all about Christ, anything that you can do. He is the heir of all things, and the Father intended it all for Him. The church is for Christ. Salvation is for Christ. The cross is for Christ. We are for Christ. Um, and boy, it takes a long time to get your head around that. It takes a long time to get your head around that. Um, and I'm still getting my head around it. And I'm, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, the old, the old uh, Latin phrase for sin, cor in curvatus ed se, the heart turned in upon itself. Cor in curvatus ed se, the heart turned in upon itself. It just, it, it's, it's, it, we're, we're, we're always coming back to, it's about me. It's about me. It's not. It's not about me. Um, so, he, uh, yeah, Colossians uh, 1, 15 to 17, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And here's the, here's the punch. And in Him all things hold together. As word... As word, he is the binding agent. As the word, as the spoken word of God, that word gathers all things and holds them together. So that the very atoms and molecules in the universe held together in tension is by Christ. This is repeated, this is repeated in, um, in Hebrews 1.3. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Why do, the, why do the planets bob in space the way that they do? Why does gravity work the way that it does? Why aren't we kind of, you know, flying, off, flying out of the earth? And it's because Christ is holding all things together by the word of his power. Scientists are madly trying to discover why these things are so. And the theologians have um, already discovered the answer. Matthew 8, 27. We, we, we see that he is the Lord of the winds and the sea. He speaks. He speaks and his act of power constrains, um, constrains the, uh, the winds and the sea. And then this applies to our conversion as well. 1 Peter 1.23, born again by the living and abiding word of God. That is, it's the word of God and its activity that creates new life, new life in us. I love what Athanasius says. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. This is in his little book uh, on the Incarnation. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. Now, this is critical, right, when we try to understand what salvation is all about. Salvation is new creation. Salvation is new creation so that inasmuch as the old creation 
happened solely and unilaterally by the voice of God and the word of God and the command of God, so new creation happens as well by the voice of God and the fiat of God. God says, let there be light in, in Carly and Tim's and Laura's heart, and light comes. Salvation, pardon me? I already pointed Josh out, and, and I, I couldn't do it again. It's new creation, so, uh, and that's, that's incredibly important for us to understand. Um, it's ex nihilo. It's ex nihilo. It's from nothing. Uh, our faith is created from nothing. Uh, a work of new creation. Okay, so he is the word. He communicates God. God is always to be understood through his word. Never understood apart from his word. Christ is the active power as word that it's not simply expression, but it's actually binding all things together. Um, it's the active power in our salvation. And then this word begotten. Um, so looking again at the, at the article, he is the Son, which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting. Now, you notice that phrase there, begotten from everlasting. Now, can anybody tell me where, where we find the word begotten in the scriptures? John 3.16, right? His only begotten son. So the, he's uniquely begotten. Where else do we, where else do we see it? Do I, oh, it's right there. Did, did I put it in there? I did, too. Um, it's all there. You don't need to, you don't need to, to tell me because it's all there. Psalm 2. Psalm 2.7 and, and Hebrews 1.5 and then John 3.16. So let's look at Psalm, Psalm 2 because this is um, especially germane. Luther felt that Psalm 2 was one of the most important psalms there is. Um, and that says a lot because Luther lived in the psalms. Luther had memorized the psalms, by the way. He memorized them. I'm convinced that Luther had memorized much of the New Testament. And as, a, as an aside, as, as an aside, I, I sometimes wonder if this is not one of the, the missing... Um, Treasures of the church is Bible memorization. Thy word have I hid in my heart. I've, I've, I've put it in there so I, it can't get away from me. And I think it used to be in the church that Bible memorization was, a, was really important. <laughs> and it's, somehow it's fallen off the map uh, for us. Um, maybe just it's so readily available to us in our phones and our iPads and everywhere I don't know, but I think it's important. Um, I think, by the way, memorization, here's a, now I'm going down a real rabbit trail. Memorization is actually critical for sharp minds. I tell this to my students, if you memorize big, big tracks of something, your mind gets nimble. It really does. It, it doesn't matter what you're memorizing, it can be a cookbook you're memorizing, but your, your mind just gets nimble through memorization. Um, I think we're, we're actually made to memorize things. Um, and our minds, get, our minds get wobbly and kind of funky in a wrong way when we don't memorize. They, they, they become less sharp. Does it really? Medicine does too? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's very important. And I would love to see us as a church. Have, have any of you been in churches where you had, you know, kids would come up and, I mean, I know our kids do. Our kids do memorize scriptures and, and that's good. Um, but um, 
Yeah, it would be, it would be, it would be good for us. It would be good for us as the body. In Sunday school, back in our days, yes. it was always memorizing yes. the scripture, and we had to yeah. them. And you know what? It's really helpful in our witness when we're, you know, instead of saying, you know, there's a scripture, well, how does it go? You know, and it goes something like this, right? And we kind of paraphrase. <laughs> <laughs> the infamous paraphrase of scripture, which inevitably gets it wrong in some way or another. Um, but being able to, to pull out the sword, right? It's like, it's like uh, Ehud, right? He just kind of grabs his, with Eglon, right? That's, a, that's kind of a nasty image. But the, um, you know, we, we grab our sword really quickly and we, we have it. It's there. Because nothing, nothing impacts the unconverted like a verse of scripture readily at hand. Just here it is. The Bible says, and we just quote it. Because the word is powerful. Rather than fumbling around back in the corridor of our mind somewhere and uh, bringing forth an, an imperfect paraphrase. Psalm 2. Um, at the, towards uh, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now there, there have been a number of heretics who have taught that this means that the son was begotten in time. This day I have begotten you must mean, must mean that Christ was begotten in time, that there was a point where he was not begotten. Well, that's not what the prayer book says or the, the articles say. He is begotten from everlasting. That is always begotten. There never was a time when he was not begotten. Now look at what Luther says here then. So the, the term here, you, I, I put it in quotations there, is eternal generation. He is always, that, that's the, the, the eternal process of being begotten. Luther explains it here. Today I have begotten thee, that is, in eternity. Eternity means that he has been begotten, is being begotten, and will be begotten without end. To him being a son means that he is born of the Father. There is neither beginning nor end to his birth, but he is continually begotten by an ever-present nativity. Rightly, he is said to be begotten today, that is, always being begotten. Every day he is being begotten. This is how Luther explains, and this is how our, how our articles explain. Now, Calvin, Calvin is a little bit uncomfortable with this. Just, I just threw this in there just so that you know. Calvin thinks of the begotten in Scripture as speaking as to the testimony and the manifestation of the sonship of God, the, 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 in quotation marks, the authentic and evident marks of his sonship. So that whenever in scripture, in the gospels, God gave clear demonstration to the sonship of the Lord, that was his begotten. This day I've begotten. You are my son with whom I'm well pleased. That is him being begotten. Now, I, this is one of the rare occasions where I don't agree with Calvin. Um, but I just, to be fair to him, I thought I would throw that in there. I think, I think Luther, Luther is right. Luther, uh, Augustine says the same thing in his confessions, eternally begotten. Um, that is that he is eternally being generated by the Father. Always has been and always will be. So that, so that, see, Sonship is never an event in time. Sonship is never an event in time, but he is necessarily the son, and he is eternally the son. Now, this goes back to our last, our last uh, session on the on the Trinity. Um, that is, he is to use a fancy word. He, he is ontologically the son. 
he is son by being. It is, it is his, remember the word we used last time? It, it is his, it, it doesn't belong to the ousia, but it belongs to, as Calvin explains, to, to the hypostasis. It belongs to that reality that is non-communicable. But he, he has it by, by necessity and eternity. So begotten is not about begotten in time, always begotten. Three, now I don't, I don't want to hammer away at this because we talked about all that ooze um, last time, homo ousios, and we don't, need to, we don't need to repeat that. But it is in the article here again. Um, of one, you see that he is begotten from everlasting, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father. Homo ousios. This is just picking up the language of the Nicene Creed there. Of one substance with the Father, but a different hypostasis. Um, and then we have this, um, the, the, uh, the language of now two natures, one person. One substance with the Father took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided. So two natures in one person. So on the second page there, under four, this is the phrase that we use, the theological phrase, it's called the hypostatic union. Two natures and one, one person. <clears throat> one hypostasis. Now, a couple things here. You, you'll, you, you notice two phrases here. The communicatio idiomatum and the extra Calvinisticum. These are two, two important phrases that, that um, have something to do with the hypostatic union. If Christ is two, two, per, two natures, God very God and man very man, how do they relate to each other? <laughs> do they relate to each other? So the communicatio idiomatum, you see the phrase here, is the communication of properties. How does the Godhead of Christ relate to the manhood of Christ? Is there any, is there a, is there a border patrol right there? Right? Is it hard, it, can, can they interchange? Can they, inter, can, they, can they pass on elements one from the other? Pass on properties one from the other? Well, Calvin had a problem with that. The Lutherans, the Lutherans not so much. So it, within the realm of the Reformation, there were some Reformed people, namely the Lutherans, who thought that the divinity of Christ could influence the humanity of Christ. Now I'm going to ask you now if you can think of any way that's material to the church in which it would be necessary, especially for a Lutheran, for the humanity of Christ to be impacted and influenced by the divinity of Christ. So what are some properties of divinity? What, what's, a, what's a property of divinity? Omnipotence, all-powerful. Always strong, right? Always powerful. Um, unlimited power. Now think of Christ. Remember when, when the, the disciples are trying to wake him up in the boat? Master, Master, we're sinking here. Where, what's Christ doing? He's so tired... He's so exhausted that he's sleeping in a storm. It's not that he's just testing them there, that he's, 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 he's exhausted, 
right? Where else do we see Christ as being weary in Scripture? Weary in ministry, he's remember the in John four when he goes to the uh, he 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 goes to the woman at the well. He's weary, it says, and he's thirsty. He needs a drink. On the cross, we find him. I thirst. In in the garden that we read today, he's so horrified. He's so he's so stressed out. His human nature is so stressed. I mean, we talk about our stress. He is so stressed about what's coming. He's it, the 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 Greek there. He's staggering like a drunk man. He's staggering like a... He's witless. He doesn't know what to do. And he starts to bleed blood because he's, he's, he's in such anxiety about what's coming. Um, well, where's the omnipotence? <laughs> where's the omnipotence there? You know, how is that omnipotence of that nature communicating with, with the human nature there? Um, what, what, other, what other elements, uh, we, we have, uh, what other element of, of divinity can we think of? So there's omnipotence, there's omniscience, knows all things. Remember the woman who comes to, who, who has the issue of blood, she's gone to various doctors and she, she can't be cured, and she says to herself, if I can just touch hold of his, of his garment, and she, she touches him, and what does he say? Who touched me? Who? who? <laughs> Where's the, where's the omniscience? How is the omniscience of the deity communicating with his humanity at that point? You see how, how now how theologians want to ask these questions? How do the natures relate to each other? Because even at that point, even if the omniscience is not present, there's some divinity being, because it's just, I, I perceive that virtue has, has gone out of me. Power. Power has gone out of me. So, um, Theologians have, have tried to understand, and for, for the Lutherans, especially in the Lord's Supper, especially in the Lord's Supper, it becomes important to them to talk about the divinity of Christ influencing the body of Christ. Why? Because when the Lord's Supper happens all around the globe, if it is to be the veritable body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, what attribute of divine nature must it possess? Omnipresence, right? Omnipresence. And so Luther wants to really, really uh, stress the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of properties, because the body of Christ needs to be in Paris and it needs to be in, 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 uh, in um, you know, um, Houston. Houston, yes, thank you. <laughs> Belmont. Beaumont. Beaumont. Yes, it has to be in all these places. Now Calvin, Calvin is 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 very very concerned about this, and and Calvin will will uh, so the extra Calvinisticum is simply the Calvinistic extra. Calvin says the word is fully united. It's fully united. That is the divinity, the word, is fully united to the human, but it's always outside. It is never never bound um, to the human the human person. Of Christ, um, so just a little a little distinction there, um, as as we as we think about how to navigate our way through some of these these things. So two natures, one person. How how they are united? Well, we can't we can't go into that tonight. They are united. The important part for us tonight is we 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 must insist that he is absolutely perfectly both. Even though, even though. Um, 
at various points uh, in Scripture, it seems that he's lacking one or the other of the qualities of the nature. Now, that's, it's, it's important for us as well to, to recognize that often in Scripture, Christ will be named, Christ will be called by terms that refer to one or the other, right? He will be referred to as both. Terms that seem to, to bespeak his humanity and terms that seem to bespeak his divinity. Um, and, and that's significant. Why? Because he is both. And so it's proper to identify himself uh, as both. Christ is both. Sometimes he's called Lord, sometimes he's called Rabbi, right? A very human term and a very exalted divine term. He's called, he's called the, uh, the Lord of glory. Otherwise, you would not have crucified the Lord, of, the Lord of glory. And yet everyone in his community said, is this not Mary's son? <laughs> is this not the carpenter's son? He was the carpenter's son. Right, the Son of Man, we have these messianic titles too. Messianic titles in the Old Testament that were, that were uh, befitting of a human person. The Son of Man, the Son of David. Yes. So it's, it's, it's appropriate. So when people come, when, when challengers come and say, well, look at this scripture, he's referred to as a man here. Well, he is a man. And it's appropriate to identify himself as a man, even as it's appropriate to identify himself as the Lord of glory. Um, one, 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 per, uh, one person, two natures. <clears throat> the virgin birth. He took man's nature in the womb of the blessed virgin. Now, in what way was Mary the blessed virgin? Well, she is to be called blessed above all women. She is to be regarded. All people will call me blessed. Right? It's not inappropriate as a Protestant to call her the Blessed Virgin. She is unique among women. She is indeed Theodicus. Theodicus, she is the mother of God. She did not give birth to his divinity, but in her womb, she nourished the God-man. Um, and uh, she, is, she is unique. Now, um, obviously, there have been, there have been um, uh, erroneous doctrines surrounding Mary. It's wrong to worship her. It's wrong to venerate her. It's wrong to regard Mary as co-redemptrix, as uh, the, the, the Romans do. Um, there are a number of doctrines, yeah, uh, uh, um, extra-biblical doctrines that that uh, attach themselves to Mary that are inappropriate. It is not wrong to see her as very, very special and indeed heroic. Because if, if, if the word was lost through the unbelief of Eve, if the word was lost, right? Sin at the fall is the flight from the word. It, it, it's humanity departing from the word. The fall is humanity departing from the word. Salvation is bringing us back to the word. And if the fall occurred on account of Eve's pride and Eve's sin and Eve's rebellion, Christ comes to us on account, on account, in part, of Mary's submission. Be it unto me according to your word. Mary believes 
This isn't by mistake that we have these two pivotal characters in, in the scriptures. And it's, it's significant that we regard that and we, we honor Mary in that way uh, for, her, for her faith and her, her virtue. Um, why the virgin birth? Well, we, we, the, the, the clearest that we, we get uh, biblically to why the virgin birth is from Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So the, the virgin birth is, is um, meant as a sign to us, a sign of what's coming. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name uh, Emmanuel. What is, what is it a sign of? It's a sign of the sinlessness of Christ. Now, in what way does the virgin birth guarantee or cause the sinlessness of Christ? That is speculation, and I will not go there. That is only speculation. It is a sign of the sinless birth. Um, how it's associated with that sinless birth, we do not know. All that we know is that Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the material cause of uh, the sinlessness of Christ. The virgin birth is a sign of that sinlessness, and my opinion is that's where we're safe. We're safe to affirm that and to assert that. It's a sign of that thing. Um, was Mary sinless? <clears throat> well, what does Romans 3.10 say? There is none righteous except Mary. <laughs> <laughs> no, not one, not one. The problem with, with, with needing to assert Mary's sinlessness to conceive a sinless Christ is that what do you need to conceive a sinless Mary? You, you, need, you need to go, it's, it's infinite regress, right? You've got to keep going back and back and back and back and back. The cause of Christ's sinlessness is the Holy Spirit. Um, the virgin birth is a sign attesting to that sinlessness. Um, Mary, according to Scripture, if she is one of us, cut from the same cloth, herself was not sinless. It's, it's clear to me in the Gospel of Mark, at least, that Mary, the whole family starts to doubt Christ. Remember that in, in Mark? I think it's Mark 4. They're, they're, they're call, his whole family is calling him. They're saying, Jesus, come back. You come back. They thought that he was crazy. And, and in response to that, do you remember what Jesus says? Who's my mother? Who's my mother? Who's my, who's my brothers? Those who hear the word of God and do it. It's a very strong word. Um, it's a very strong word. Sorry? This is Mark's gospel. Um, I can pull it up for you here. Mark chapter 4, I believe. Maybe it's earlier. Um, is it in Mark 3? Just before 4, yes, okay. So, his, his, uh, so just before that, um, yeah, all his mothers and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him, called him, and a crowd was sitting around him and said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mothers? Who are, who, who, <laughs> who are my mothers? Who are my mother uh, and, my, and my brothers? 
Now, um, go back to verse 20 of, of chapter 3. This is the important part. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, his family, the whole family, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. <laughs> he's mad. And then it, it, picks up, it picks up in verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came, and they, they're, trying, they're calling to him. Stop doing this stuff. So, um, there's a number of things we could say about that, but we'll leave it there. The death of Christ. He, he was born of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, two perfect natures, Godhood and manhood, joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried to reconcile his Father to us and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. That is, not only for Adam and Eve's sin, but for my sins this morning and for my sins tomorrow that I'm guaranteed to commit. As sure as the Bible says, I must ask for forgiveness every day. By the way, let me say another uh, aside here. You will never experience a day on this earth where you do not fall short of the glory of God in some way, whether through sins of commission or omission. Most certainly, always, it will be both. Um, the Lord's Prayer teaches us that as every day we must ask for food, so every day we must ask for forgiveness of sins. Um, and, and I've made it my habit, um, I mean, um, uh, every night, I, 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 I must confess my sins to the Lord every night because the Lord's Prayer commits, commands me to do so. Um, okay, the death of Christ, it is central. It is absolutely central in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The death of Christ is what the Bible is all about. It is the central doctrine of the Old Testament, and it's the central doctrine of the New Testament. Now, just turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. First Corinthians 15. 15, 3. For I delivered to you, Paul says, now th this is the word here that's important, of first importance. I deliver to you as of first, it's the most important thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. Um, Luke 13, 25 to uh, 17. Luke 13, what have I written here? That's not the right, we'll just, we'll just ignore that. Chris, you can cut that out of the, uh, of the <laughs> do your magic. I have no idea what I put there. I'm, I, I, have, I've, I have some other text there in mind that I've missed. I will say something different when you play it First Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Twenty-three to twenty-six. For as I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul says the matter of first importance is the death of Christ. And the, the church in its, in its gathering around the table is proclaiming that which is of utmost importance to it. So the Lord's Supper, among uh, a number of things, is that important aspect of proclaiming what is central to us as a church. Look what P.T. Forsyth says. P.T. Forsyth uh, was a, a very important British theologian, liberal turned conservative, he writes, an evangelical church has stood and stands not only for the supreme value of Christ's death, but for its prime value as atonement to a holy God, and as the only atonement whereby man is just with God. By atonement, what is atonement? Is meant that action of Christ's death, which has a prime regard to God's holiness, has it for its first charge, and finds man's reconciliation impossible, except as that holiness is divinely satisfied once for all on the cross. What does this mean? Well, it means that God is love. It means that God is also holiness. God is love, God is also light. And in him dwells no darkness at all. And the just and the holy and the righteous nature of God demanded and required the condemnation of sin. God could not um, be God without condemning the sinner, without destroying all sin. And Christ then comes in our place, and he receives in himself the punishment that we deserved, and therefore Jesus is the word propitiation. He is the, indeed the satisfying of divine justice. Now that, just as an aside, again, th this is not a very uh, popular idea. That is, it's very easy to start singing about the cross and preaching about the cross and talking about the cross in ways that emphasize God's love but does not emphasize the holiness of God. It's very easy because no one wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that God was, was so um, offended, offended, offended by human sin, that he had to unleash his divine anger on the world. Um, I, think, I think that, that we rob the cross of its power. I think we, we rob the gospel of its power when the idea of propitiation is, is um, pulled out of the gospel and pulled out of the preaching of the cross. When Paul says, God forbid that I preach anything but the cross of Jesus Christ, he has in his mind the holiness of God which needed to be satisfied. And Christ satisfied the divine anger of God. Um, and um, this has many, many applications, but I simply want to, to, to warn us as a church that we, we, we cannot make the cross all about God's love and not about his holiness. That's a mistake that will always lead us down um, diminishing. It'll, the law of, of diminishing returns will always set in when we preach that kind of gospel. Um, finally, finally today, Jesus as the sympathetic high priest. Romans 4, 14, uh, sorry, Romans, 
Folks, it's been a long day for me. Hebrews 4, 4 to 16. Let's just take a look at that verse here. Hebrews 4. What does it mean for Jesus to become man? Well, it means that he is our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see, the temptation in this church, at least, was that people were letting go. As is the temptation for all of us. As is the temptation for all of us every day. Letting go, letting go, letting go. Let us hold fast. Let's grip it. Let's grip our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might, re might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now look at these three phrases, phrases here. Posse non pecari. Non posse non pecari. Non posse pecari. Three theological terms that um, describe humanity and their ability to sin or not sin. Posse non peccari, able not to sin. That's descriptive of humanity before the fall. Non posse non peccari, not able not to sin. That's me, subsequent to the fall. And you. Non posse peccari, um, sorry, that's, that's those who, those are the unregenerate, I should say, not able not to sin, humanity after the fall. Non posse peccari, not able to sin. That's humanity glorified. In glory, we shall not be able to sin. Prior to the fall, we were able not to sin. Subsequent to the fall, before the regenerating work of Christ, we, are, we were not able not to sin. Now, where does Christ come in here? As God... And man, when Christ faced temptation, was he able to sin? This is, a, this is a question that has ravaged the theological world. Was Christ able to sin? Well, a number of people have said no, because God can't sin. However, if we say no, then what do we deny? We deny his humanity. We deny his humanity. And what he is not, a, this is Nazianzen's term, is helpful to, to memorize, just keep it, in your, keep it in a little drawer up here. What Christ has not assumed, he's not healed. This is, comes from Gregory Nazianzen. What he's not assumed, he's not healed. If he's not assumed our whole humanity, then he's not healed it. Um, so the only way to understand the temptations of Christ in the garden in Gethsemane, in the wilderness with the devil, is to affirm that in his humanity, he stood where, it, where Adam stood. Posse non peccari, he was able not to sin. He was not non posse peccari, he was not not able to sin. He stood where Adam stood, and he did what Adam did not. Christ did what Adam did not do, but he was in the same position with that, with that same pure humanity. 
And that means that when we read those scripture passages of Christ in the wilderness with the serpent coming to him and tempting him with these offers, they were so fierce and so hard that, that he was so beleaguered by them that afterwards, what, what had to happen for him to regain his strength? Angels had to come to him because it was so hard to resist these temptations. And, and yet he did. And, uh, and the same goes with the garden, right? The angels come and they minister to him because he endures the heat of temptation. Now, we never, we never properly understand how hard temptation is until we endure it. You do not know how hard a temptation is if you succumb to it. You've not felt the heat of it. You've not felt the heat of it. And, and what, what the Hebrews is saying here is that because Christ has gone through it in every way possible, uh, as, as we have, that, that we can lean on him and receive his strength um, in, in those moments of, uh, of, great, of great temptation which we, uh, which we all face. He is our sympathetic high priest. He's gone through it all for us, and it's, it's, it's so crucial for the Christian life that we learn to lean on Jesus in this way. In all of our temptations, in all of our troubles, no matter what they may be, that we're actively looking to Christ. And the promise is that he will, he will, um, he will give us grace, um, and we will find mercy in time of our need. Well, folks, that's all that I've, I've, uh, I've uh, wanted to cover today. There's so much more that we could say, but I, I, we've been going a bit long uh, lately, and I wanted to, to give time for questions. So are there any questions that, we can, that you'd like to raise about the material tonight?